Welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast with your hosts, Richard Hill and Matthew Darlitz. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. I'm Matthew Darlitz, Editor-in-Chief of the Science of Psychotherapy and as always here with Richard Hill. Hi, Richard. Yes, I am here, and it, it's really, fan, really fantastic because this is a, a an interesting, interesting interview today. But we're getting closer and closer to something else really interesting, which yes. is the release of our book. By golly, it's been so long. <laughs> and, and so, so in March, we're out with with the book. Remind me of the title of our new book: The Practitioner's Guide to the Science of Psychotherapy with a forward by John Arden. Yes, yes. John's been such a great, uh, uh, great supporter. In fact, I saw him on Facebook the other day with something he said, <laughs> this is a great book. Anyway, yes. Uh, but we, we do leave it. We're, we're going to give lots of um, uh, opportunities for people to, to see what we're doing and, mm. and that it's a book worth worthwhile doing and we'll have a special uh, magazine issue in March. But let's get back to our fabulous um uh, person to talk about the magazine, who we published uh, with an interview with Roger Kaiserstein. So this is Dr. Brian Quinn, who's a specialist in the area of depression and particularly bipolar disorder. Yes, absolutely. Let me give you a little bit of a rundown. So Dr. Quinn, he's the author of the Depression Source book, um, a second edition, and the Wiley Concise Guide to Mental Health, Bipolar Disorder. And so he's a practicing clinician and social worker in Huntington, New York, and he works with individuals suffering from mood disorders. And he has some really interesting things to talk to us about uh, as psychotherapists working with bipolar disorder. Yeah, and and this, of course, is the the whole of what the science of psychotherapy is all about. Is it's not even if you're a, a dealing with as a as a prescribing uh, person, but you're going to be seeing these people, and we've got to know about the stuff. So I can't wait to talk to Brian. He's uh, he's he's a really clever dude. Now, before we jump in, uh, if you do appreciate what we're doing here on The Science of Psychotherapy, please do support us. You can support us by becoming part of the tribe. Come across to thescienceofpsychotherapy.net and become a subscriber and have access to uh, just tons of material that we have there for therapists. But for now, we're off to New York to talk to Dr. Brian Quinn. Dr. Brian Quinn, thank you so much for joining us here on The Science of Psychotherapy podcast. Great to have you. Thank you so much for inviting me on. Very much appreciated. And uh, Richard here, Brian, uh, uh, it's so good to have you uh, able to speak to you. But we had that wonderful uh, interview you did with Roger Kaiserstein in the magazine, and we were really grateful for that. And we just wanted to get in a bit bit more with you because it's so interesting, the work you do. Sure, sure. Now, um, for those who don't know you, maybe a little bit of an introduction. Can you give us a bit of your background? Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a clinical social worker in uh, New York, and uh, I've been doing psychotherapy for 40 to 45 years. I got interested in this topic when antidepressants began to be prescribed uh, extensively in the early 1990s, and I began to find that a lot of my patients on antidepressants weren't doing terribly well, or they were actually getting worse started to do some research and I found, oh, one of the main reasons is if the people have bipolar depression versus plain depression, they're just not going to do well on antidepressants. And, and and that's the current science. That's not Brennan Quinn's idea. That's uh, that's where the current science is at. 
Yeah. Now, I'm wondering if you could tease that out a little bit, because that was something um, very new to me and no doubt new to a lot of our listeners uh, about the fact that these antidepressants, which are prescribed quite frequently for depression with bipolar, is not the way to go. Yeah, there's a couple of layers of this problem. One is, is that most prescribers, including psychiatrists, will prescribe an antidepressant for anyone with symptoms of depression. And this is a big mistake because depression is not a diagnosis when you think about it. It's a collection of symptoms with many possible causes. And one of the many causes are is bipolar illness. People often forget that bipolar illness is a predominantly depressive illness. And the mistake prescribers make is to go from symptoms of depression to diagnosis of depression to treatment with an antidepressant, rather than keep in mind the differential diagnosis. Uh, well, what? Yeah, they're depressed, but what? What is that a symptom of? It's kind of like if you go to your your doctor with a cough and a fever. He doesn't diagnose you with a cough and a fever disorder. Um, he tries to figure out what illness is causing your cough and fever, and, and this is really. Um, What's incumbent upon uh, prescribers to do is to figure out, well, yeah, the person's depressed, but is this part of major depressive disorder, bipolar depression, uh, schizophrenia, post-traumatic stress disorder? So that, that's, the, that's the first order of business is to do that differential. Yeah, and it's interesting that there's sort of a, as I was looking through and as I've been exploring it, and we did a bit for our book, and there are, seem to be about four categories that they do, sort of bipolar one, bipolar two, the um, uh, the cyclothymic, they call it. And, of course, the other one, which is which is a glorious one that we have in DSM in various places, unspecified, uh, which right. <laughs> meaning right. the other stuff that we, aren't, we, we can't really figure out. But this act of sort of separating them up, what, what's the benefit of, of, of that? Well, it's interesting. Before DSM-3 in 1980, they weren't split up. Mm. If you had recurrent depressive episodes or you had cycles of depression and mania, you were considered to have manic depressive illness. Uh, It was only in 1980 that this division was made between unipolar and bipolar disorders as if to suggest that they're two separate illnesses. And the current best evidence is they're really not separate illnesses. They're all part of the same uh, rubric of manic depressive illness that was proposed by uh, the German psychiatrist and the father of modern descriptive psychiatry 100 years ago, Emil Kraepelin. And he said, you know, these are all part of one illness. And in fact, part of the what's not helpful about DSM is that DSM says, if you don't have an episode, if you haven't had an episode or a patient hasn't had an episode of mania or hypomania, they can't be considered to have bipolar illness or manic depressive illness. And that's a huge mistake scientifically. Why? Because the vast majority of people with bipolar disorder start off with a depressive or what's called a mixed episode where they're depressed, but they have some symptoms of mania. So according to DSM, Without a prior history of mania, you can't be considered bipolar. And yet we know that about half of people, children, adolescents, and young adults, about half 
who develop a severe depressive episode at that early age will go on to have a manic episode later on, especially if they have an extensive family history of, um, of mood illness. So it, it's DSM is not the best guide when it comes to this area. So yeah. potentially this could be very underdiagnosed. Yeah, uh, the best, you know, everyone says, oh, everyone's being called bipolar these days. And there probably is some misdiagnosis, but the best evidence we have from, from uh, controlled trials is that this illness is still underdiagnosed. And anywhere between 40 and 60% of patients on an outpatient basis who have symptoms of depression. 40 to 60% of them actually have bipolar illness. This is especially true for children, adolescents, and young adults with severe suicidal depression. Why? Because the illness typically begins in late adolescence with a depressive episode. These, these youngsters don't have a clear-cut history of a manic or hypomanic episode. They get diagnosed with de depression and put on antidepressants, often to their detriment. Yes. Now, can we talk about that detriment um, aspect which you bring out in the article which we've published? Sure. Well, it's not well appreciated that antidepressants have been found in controlled trials. The largest, best-conducted study um, called the STEP-BD study, completed back in 2007, federally, U.S. federally funded, found that antidepressants added to mood stabilizers, specifically um, in the United States, bupropion and uh, Welbutrin or paroxetine, Paxil, were not more effective than mood stabilizers alone. Um, and a recent study just published last year showed that the antidepressant uh, citalopram was no more effective than placebo in, at six weeks and at 12 months for those with bipolar depression. The real problem comes in is that they're not only not more effective than placebo, in a subset of people with bipolar illness, they can actually cause what's called a roughening of the course of the illness. That is, people, everyone knows antidepressants can cause mania in bipolar people. But what's not well appreciated is that that's a relatively small percentage of people. The real problem is either they don't work or they cause increased cycling, where people actually have more episodes of depression over time if they're given an antidepressant. And in bipolar patients with so-called mixed episodes, that is where they have depression and manic symptoms mixed in, like racing thoughts and agitation, antidepressants actually make those people worse. One study showed that it increases the risk of suicide two and a half fold in people. The use of antidepressants will increase the risk of suicide two and a half fold in patients with mixed depressions. Mm. Yes, and this is so interesting, Brian. And it reminds me of uh, one of my patients. And I think it's, it's, it's relevant for the psychotherapist to be aware that they might quite often be the talk therapy side of the of their their clients work so in yep. this example i had a client who was uh being attended to by a psychiatrist and a, a, to manage the sort of mood difficulties and had uh, other things that were going on 
um, and was mainly there for depression. And she came to see me, you know, was referred to me as, as the talk therapist. And what I noticed was um, she kept talking about her depression, but the talk was very agitated and very rapid. And uh, yes. I started to think in things like, oh, what am I getting, depression and anxiety at the same time? And it was yes. a little bit of fiddling about that um, anyway ended up with this, this realisation that the depression was a, a, an incorrect uh, diagnosis and it was bipolar. But that was a, that was a telltale. Yes, it, it's important to realise that depression classically conceived uh, has less to do with mood than it does with psychomotor slowing. Yes. And where, whereas mania is psychomotor excitation. And what you're talking about with your client is someone who had symptoms of depression, but also had simultaneous symptoms of psychomotor excitation. They were talking rapidly, perhaps difficult to interrupt. They were agitated. Um, they may have had racing thoughts that contributed to early insomnia. And these, these group of patients we know just don't do well on antidepressants. Um, and as I said to you when we first got going, before we started recording, it's important for therapists to realize that we as talk therapists have a horse in this race. We can't just leave it up to the psychiatrist. Why? Because if you've got someone who's bipolar or in a mixed depressive episode, and they're on antidepressants, and they're being made worse. Effective psychotherapy becomes well-nigh impossible. It may even be futile. Yeah, and I just want to quickly highlight that the, that one you brought in there because it's it's exactly what the, my client had was sleep issues, insomnia issues. So sure. that's that's another tell telltale thing to be to be looking for. Yeah, when when we work with depressed patients, you know they tend to be slowed down. They tend to the, the, the session with someone who's severely depressed in a pure depression can be very painful for them and for the therapist because they, they're they slow to respond. They have little to say. Um, you have to encourage them. Uh, you have to ask questions. You have to be active. When you get a, someone who meets diagnostic criteria for depression and they're chatting away to the point where you can't get a word in edgewise, or they're difficult to interrupt and they're agitated. As, as you thought, you have to say, wait a minute, this isn't depression. Depression is psychomotor slowing. This person is revved up. So some of these characteristics, uh, and, and maybe you can expand on some of the characteristics that therapists need to look out for. Um, right. If we're you know, putting the DSM aside for a moment right. in clinical practice, sure. what are that, the telltale signs then? Well, it's actually important to put the DSM aside because when you think about how do we make diagnoses with DSM, it's based on a list of symptoms primarily, almost exclusively. That is, if you have five of nine symptoms uh, of depression, you're considered to have a major depressive episode. Mm -hmm. um, but symptoms are only one of four validating criteria for a diagnosis. To make an accurate diagnosis, a therapist or psychiatrist must get beyond symptoms. Why? Because symptoms are nonspecific. Again, to go back to the physical analogy, if you have a cough, it could be from bronchitis, COPD, congestive heart failure, pneumonia, or COVID. 
If you have depression, it could be from depression proper, could be part of PTSD or trauma, or it could very often be a part of bipolar illness. So what, what should therapists look at? Maybe we can expand on this, but just to give you the broad overview, you have to look beyond symptoms to genetics, family history, and there's certain specific things beyond the obvious, a family history of bipolar illness. You have to look at the course of the illness, especially the age of the onset. For therapists working with children, adolescents, or young adults, you must keep in mind that severe depression at that age is a, is a fairly robust marker for someone who's going to go on to have a manic episode or bipolar course. It's not diagnostic, but it should raise your index of suspicion. So we have symptoms, family history, course of illness. And then the last category is response to antidepressants. Have they failed multiple trials of antidepressants? Have they gotten a little better than sunk back into depression? Um, have they gotten more irritable or agitated on antidepressants? So the key to good diagnosis, get beyond symptoms to course family history and response to antidepressants. Yeah. And I, because one of the things uh, as we go through there is we're starting to get in a sense of that. Uh, there's a psychotherapist we're working, we're a non-prescribing uh, profession and, um, right. you know, which which I think is good because I think you need to have some, there's a lot to know. So, um, but we need to know about things. And I just wonder if you could share some of your thoughts on the, uh, the this balance or this interaction or the frameworks between the, the mood stabilizing medications and the other sort of medications using and the psychotherapeutic uh, type of uh, interpersonal engagement. How do they work together or what's your thoughts there? Well, I can tell you what the research says, uh, which should probably be more helpful than just my thoughts, although you know I've been a psychotherapist in practice for 45 years. Um, the research is pretty clear. If you have bipolar illness, the foundation of treatment really has to be a combination of mood-stabilizing medications and atypical antipsychotics. Uh, we can get into some, some of those specifics, if you like, later on. Um, psychotherapy by itself is probably not going to be effective in stabilizing the long-term course of the illness. However, psychotherapy, certain specific forms of it, including family-focused treatment, interpersonal social rhythm therapy, uh, dialectical behavior therapy, when effectively applied, improve the course and the outcome of uh, treatment. They're very, very critical to long-term stability. The other thing that's interesting, that's neither medication nor psychotherapy uh, for long-term stability, is circadian, what's called circadian rhythm integrity. Some very interesting research showing that a regular sleep-wake schedule, avoidance of bright light at night and getting uh, bright light during the day can be quite mood-stabilizing even in the absence of medication. And yeah, I think that's pretty but, true right across, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it, it is as a general part of good health um, to do that, but it's especially important for people with bipolar illness you know, all the skills that we've developed over the years for engaging with our clients uh, can come in 
very handy, even the general psychotherapeutic techniques for helping patients accept the diagnosis and the need for medication. We have to keep in mind that bipolar illness is still highly stigmatized. You'll hear, you'll, you'll hear people talk all the time about, oh, that's my ADHD acting up, or I'm on this or that antidepressant. You're not going to hear anyone say, oh, that's my mania acting up. And let me tell you about the lithium I'm taking. There's still a tremendous stigma attached to this. And as therapists, especially when people come to us not for a diagnosis or treatment, you have to be very careful about um, introducing the concept of bipolar illness because very often it's experienced as yet another narcissistic blow. Um, and accepting the illness is a process of mourning. Um, and, and there's a lot of work to be done between denial of the illness, which people often start with, and then acceptance. And, and that's where the skills of, of psychotherapy come in. Mm. And, and I think you said it can take years um, to, to come to a diagnosis. Is that right? Yeah, the research in this regard is very, uh, very sobering. Uh, and <laughs> disappointing. <laughs> disappointing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it can take an average of eight to 10 years for people to get an accurate diagnosis of bipolar illness. On, on average, people see three to four mental health professionals, including psychiatrists, um, between the time of onset of their symptoms, which is typically depression, and the accurate diagnosis of bipolar illness. And during those eight to 10 years, guess what medications tend to be used the most? Yeah. Antidepressants. Mm. Mm. Yeah, we're kind of expectant of uh, the, the of depression and of anxiety. So you, it's, it's um, uh, and misreading, uh, the, yes, it's such a subtle, uh, it, I'm just trying to find the right words uh, and perhaps you could help me, but this uh, understanding of the fact that we have cyclic movements within us, that we're, we're, we're expressant of, we're not so simplistic as just to have a, a unipolar thing uh, as our only alternative. No, you, you, this is why you need to get beyond symptoms, but mm. also... You need, therapists need to get beyond, and prescribers need to get beyond current symptoms. No evaluation of a depressed patient is complete until a therapist or a prescriber carefully searches for a history of hypomania as defined by periods of increased energy and productivity that often, often rapidly shift into these lethargic shutdown depressions. But it's amazing to me how often prescribers will simply make a diagnosis and a treatment plan based on a cross-sectional evaluation of symptoms without looking for a history of hypomania and without really doing a good family history to see if not only there's bipolar illness, but a multi-generation history of depression, mood dysregulation, explosive temperament, suicide. Um, and that's the bad stuff. The other thing that you need to look for in a family history um, that's uh, important is a family history of, of creativity, artistic and musical talent. Um, some, of the, some of the most famous artists, composers, writers in Western civilization have had bipolar illness. Mm. So in the family histories of people with bipolar illness, 
you see a much higher rate of creativity and artistic talent than you do in the general population. That's something you need to look for as well. Mm, wow, that's very interesting. Yeah. Now, uh, I've got a question. And so as a, as a therapist working with someone with bipolar, and they're also, you know, under a psychiatrist who, who is giving them a uh, antidepressant, where where do I stand then? Uh, I guess it's an ethical question <laughs> in terms yes. of informing the client because, you know, the psychiatrist is seen to have more authority. Um, yes. Well, you're putting your finger on a real problem, Matthew, which is, I mean, I've had psychiatrists, when, you know, say to me, Dr. Quinn, are, are you a medical doctor? Um, you know, and I say, no, but I have read the research. And the research and the science are crystal clear. Antidepressants are not the treatment of choice for people with bipolar illness. Even, in fact, in the, Amer- in, in the United States, the American Psychiatric Association standard of practice is to avoid the use of antidepressants in patients with mild to moderate bipolar depression and to use mood stabilizers like lithium and, and divalprex instead. Unfortunately, your experience is very similar to mine, and I think is very common. Antidepressants are the most commonly prescribed medication for people with bipolar illness, even well-defined, identified bipolar illness. And in 20% of cases, a recent study showed, they're prescribed in the absence of mood-stabilizing medication. So what, what do we do? Well, All you can do is have a rational science-based discussion with the psychiatrist and with your patient if they're ready to hear it about the optimal treatment and why they're stuck. It it can come as a source of tremendous relief and hope to the patient who's been on multiple medications for many years and just not doing well to hear that there's another approach that really holds the hope for for acute improvement and long-term stability. So I I think our job as therapists is to just, is to talk about the research with the patient and with the psychiatrist. Now you talked about the circadian rhythm and, you know, getting into, you know, a good rhythm with the rising of the sun and the falling thereof. Uh, what What are some of the other key elements, especially when we're talking about talk therapy that we should be honing in on? Well, assuming the person is uh, appropriately uh, medicated, let's let's jump past the antidepressant dilemma. Let's say they're appropriately medicated. Um, well, actually, if you've gotten there, you're probably halfway home. But this key concept of accepting the diagnosis and the likely need for lifelong medication is something that depressed people have a very difficult time understanding and and, and tolerating. And our psychiatrist colleagues have neither the time nor, in my experience, the personal inclination to patiently discuss with their patients what it means to have this illness and to take medication. So that is a key issue. Um, But another part of it that's important are emotion regulation skills especially, you know, managing anger. And what's so common in any depressive illness is depressive and anxious rumination. Um, It's very important for, I think, therapists to borrow some of the findings from 
the third wave of cognitive behavioral therapies like acceptance and commitment therapy, dialectical behavior therapy, be able to help their patients stand back from their painful, depressive, anxious ruminations and learn how to get some distance on it and to help them re-engage in life and living rather than in depressive, ruminative suffering. So uh, that, that's, that's another big challenge psychotherapeutically. Yeah, there, there was some very interesting general public work presented uh, through Stephen Fry, the uh, the English yes. uh, actor and uh, raconteur, showing that and interviewing and talking to to various people about this this capacity to manage within frameworks of medication, but but in addition. To, um, that he found that the medication system was was insufficient. Mm-hmm. Looking with at a moment that uh, a young couple, and um, one is is requiring medication still uh, in a very strong way, and she's perhaps a bit reliant, and maybe we need some work there. But interestingly, over the years, the uh, the the fellow, the chap, has found that he felt he could manage better. On uh, without so much uh, medical medication assistance, mm-hmm. and so he uh, started to talk to his psychiatrist about that and resolved. And he found that he takes now very little medication, and he mm-hmm. utilizes um, sort of self-directed management of himself. And he's uh, okay. uh, he's he's managing it. It this sort of flow and change through life and. And that degree of returning and understanding some sense of independence is this something that is 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 common, or is this um, uh, how do people, as you say, they feel better when they're at least given a diagnosis that they can understand? Some people do. Uh, some people find it a great relief to have a label, and, and that's accurate, and that explains their suffering, and particularly their non-response to years and years of various inappropriate medications. You know, mm. I think you mentioned one, uh, one of your clients who was on multiple medications. This is not uncommon where people are given an antidepressant because they're depressed. They're given uh, an antipsychotic because they're angry and agitated. They're given a stimulant because they're distractible and can't concentrate. They're given um, an anti-anxiety agent because they have panic attacks and anxiety. And and people wind up on these cocktails Mm. that are, it's not even so much the cocktail that's the problem with a number. It's that it's a medication for each symptom. It's, It's sort of like, again, like you go to your doctor with a fever and cough and aches and pains, and he sends you home with acetaminophen for the pain, uh, Robitussin for the cough, and, um, you know, something else for, you know, the other symptoms. So it, it can come as a real relief to people to know that there's a specific illness with specific treatment. But again, you got to be careful, um, especially as therapists, where people come to us generally, initially, not for a diagnosis, but for what they consider problems in living. You got to be careful about dropping the the bipolar bomb too quickly because it can really scare people off. Yeah, I think you know this is such good advice, and I think that that wonderful word, careful, that cautious, that gentle, 
type of approach, which is which is also one of the things that we're we're really advocating in the work we do. So bringing all these topics is not so that you know we're not trying to encourage therapists to run out and go, hey, I've now I've done the thing on bipolar. You've all you know, woo. Uh, it's right. just yes. to embrace. It's actually encourage you to be more thoughtful, uh, even right. even more thoughtful is is what we're hoping. Right which is a lovely place to be leaving people with. But I'm just wondering if there's something uh, important that we've missed or if there's just a sort of a summary or, or a, a message you'd like to leave our, our good listeners with. Well, I guess there would be two things which are not new. They're just a, 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 a review, a recapitulation of what I said. Um, one thing I'd really like your therapist listeners to consider is if you take nothing else home from this, don't make the mistake of going from symptoms of dep depression to diagnosis of depression to a referral to a psychiatrist for antidepressants because lots of times you're going to be wrong. Remember, 40 to 60% of especially young people with a severe depressive illness uh, actually have a bipolar illness, not plain depression. Uh, and then the second point is, Whenever your listeners get into diagnostic conundrums or debates with their colleagues, well, is this ADHD? Is it depression? Is it bipolar? Is it borderline? The way to get out of that mess is to look beyond symptoms to genetics, family history, course of illness, and response to antidepressants. You will get a lot clearer picture if you look at those diagnostic validators rather than sort of ruminate over a list of symptoms and what they could mean yeah, yeah beautiful summary but that, that, great matt i love that was great <laughs> absolutely and for people who want to know more we we will point them to a number of books that you have you've got a wiley guide on bipolar and you have another book uh the depression source book the depression right. source book yeah um so oh. we will we'll leave links in the show notes for people to to find out more about that very much appreciate it, fellows. Thanks so much for having me on. All right. It's been wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Brian Quinn. All right. Well, thank you, Matthew. Thank you, Richard. Pleasure. Take care. Well, uh, that was... That was just so interesting. Yeah, it's really fascinating when you talk to someone who's um, both expert, but also got a real humanistic grasp of, of their of what they're talking about. Yeah, yeah. And look, I I feel like I have really learned something very important and new. I I had no idea about the effects of these uh, SSRIs mm. uh, and bipolar. So extremely important information. I'm going to have to go and do some more foundational research. There's some beautiful, uh, I, I actually did a little um, little free 30-minute video course that I found on the web in one of the, you know, reputable sites. Uh -huh. uh, so there's, there's good stuff out there. Uh, make yourself familiar, make yourself aware because uh, you're you're going to be sitting, there's, there's going to be people sitting across from you that need your knowledge, need your knowledge. Yeah, and for our subscribers, um, jump across to the January 2022 issue and you'll, you'll find there's an article there, uh, the interview that we made re reference to. And if you're not a subscriber, 
You should be because there's <laughs> the magazines, hundreds of courses, videos, and yeah. new documentaries. Uh, and uh, we'll be getting soon. We'll be starting um, uh, live masterclasses. So there's lots and lots and lots going on at the Science of Psychotherapy. Yeah, fantastic. We'd love to have you on board. Uh, well, thanks everyone for tuning in to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. For more great science, go to thescienceofpsychotherapy.com.